Uh, please turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Again, starting in verse 13, and we're working through to the end of the chapter uh, today. You remember that last week we did cover verses 13 through 23, but I decided to include them again uh, this week. Uh, last week we didn't necessarily dig up all the good stuff that we could from each verse because uh, it was important for last week to make sure that we emphasize the main point of this, this whole passage. Really, all of verses 13 to 27 Uh, Which is this, we could say it this way, Jesus Christ is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Put your faith in him alone. If you want to enter the narrow gate, you must repent of your sin and and place your faith in Christ alone for your forgiveness. If you want to walk this hard, restrictive path, Christ must be your Lord. We could also argue this, uh, one will only want to walk this uh, singular hard path when... Christ is truly their Lord. And it's only through this gate at the end of this path that we have eternal life. Jesus said this in verses 13 and 14. He says, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. This word means broad or spacious. It's roomy. There's, There's elbow room for everyone. They can do their own thing. The way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, or the word there means constrictive or or restrictive, because there is a master over that pathway, and it's not me. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few, few. Uh, Just a question I think is worthy of our consideration from these verses that we didn't really address last Sunday. If those who enter through this gate and walk this path are few, then as a church, how should we measure our success? Or perhaps a better question, what is the success, the quote-unquote success, that we should set out to accomplish. What really is our mission? And the way we state it here at First Baptist Church is this. Our mission is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. To make and mature, make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. The main passage that we and, and every other church that's trying to follow this commissioning from Christ uses for this is Matthew chapter 28. Where Jesus says this in verse 18 and following, Jesus said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a powerful statement right there. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. But when we read this passage, which many of us are so very familiar with, or we've heard it so many times, it's important for us to remember that Jesus' great commission defines evangelism here as making disciples, making disciples, followers of Jesus Christ. And that the way these new followers of Christ will evidence their faith, the way that we evidence our faith initially through obedience in baptism. 
And then these disciples, these followers of Christ that the church is striving to make, striving to mature, are to be taught all that Christ has commanded. Christ, our Lord, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And, of course, knowing what we do from from passages like John 3, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, all kinds of other places in the Bible, we know this. We do not have the power to will people saved, to will them into salvation, to receiving Christ. We cannot get people saved. Only God can do that. But we do have the responsibility to take the, take the gospel to them. Somebody said to me after the first service, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. You heard that before? What we don't do is say, that horse doesn't look as thirsty as I think he should, so I won't lead him to water. We've been called to take the gospel. That is a part of our obedience to the Lordship of Christ. Even if only few will enter, we can still desire that many hear. Therefore, we tell them. We tell the many. Be careful not to take this idea of the few. Sometimes we can do this. We take the idea of the few, and then maybe we think, well, if the few are saved, then the big churches, just by default, they must not be very godly churches. They must not preach the gospel there. Uh, Whoa, whoa, whoa. We've got to be careful with that. Uh, We know this. Christ is talking about the big picture here, right? And the truth is, there are big churches, bigger churches. I'll say it that way, bigger churches, because some people look at us and go, you guys are a big church. There are bigger churches that preach the gospel, that are seeking to make and mature disciples just like we would want to. And there are bigger churches that may be entering the wide gate and walking the wide path. And... There are smaller churches that are seeking to make and mature disciples, preaching the gospel, following the Lordship of Christ. And there are smaller churches who may be even happy in their smallness. Nobody's as good as we are, kind of a mentality sometimes. And that's another version of the wide gate and the wide path. And so what we don't have control of And what we want to be careful not to define as success is just numbers, right? We want to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. How many? As many as the Lord saves. As many as the Lord entrusts to us. And remember this too, when he entrusts them to us, he also entrusts us to them. Because we grow together as a body of believers in Jesus Christ. Amen? I was, I was asked this time, this one time, uh, in a church that I was serving in previously, an old friend of ours came and, and he asked this, uh, is your church an evangelism church or is it a discipleship church? Is your, is your church evangelism or is it discipleship? Meaning, is the church really big into going broad and, and winning as many people to Christ as you can, doing whatever it takes to win as many people as you can, or was the church really big about going deep? And really digging into God's word and really being mature. Cause, cause, you know, you can only be one of those two kinds of churches, right? Wrong. That's right. Good answer. Church, I hope you understand that if we were to strive to be any one of those without the other, we would end up eventually being neither. Mature Christians who dig deep into God's word who desire to follow the lordship of Jesus Christ, 
are going to have a heart for the lost and are going to obey our master and share the gospel with them. Mature Christians share the gospel. We should say all Christians share the gospel. And mature Christians share the gospel. Mature Christians get to know the people they're around and they seek to build relationships and they're willing to ask questions and willing to love people selflessly and seek to point people to Christ and also know and are confident and assured that God will never lose a single one of his sheep. We have that promise. And so we want to preach the gospel here and everywhere else we are found throughout the week. And we trust the results of that up to God. And we also desire to dig deep into God's word. And not to be hearers only as if just studying the Bible for sport. But with the desire to know God, to enjoy him more as we follow him in our lives. Walking this path he has so graciously called us to. This path which leads to life. This is who we want to be. In in verse 15, we are warned about false prophets, themselves having entered the wide gate and the easy path, seeking to lure even believers off the correct path. Verse 15, Jesus says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. They're pretending to be the church, pretending to be church leaders, or pretending to represent Christ. But inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Their desires and therefore their actions are towards selfish consumption of others. They clamor for praise. They clamor for approval. Uh, maybe uh, fame that they think they might have obtained. And often money as well. And here's a list of some of the descriptions uh, given to false prophets from the Apostle Peter in Second Peter chapter 2. This is not an exhaustive list from that passage. This is just many of them. The Apostle Peter writes this, that these false teachers, false prophets, they secretly or cunningly bring in destructive heresies. Cunningly. They might start out saying some good things, but not get into the real uh, real issues at hand. And, and when they say some good things, and then they attract you, and they get people's ears, and then they start going off into other areas. They're cunning. They might use same words, but with a different definition, have a little bit of a different vocabulary, because uh, the things that we hear them saying, we think, that sounds great, that sounds great, but we find out later on that means something entirely different to them. Cunningly. Many uh, of these false teachers, false prophets, they'll follow their sensuality, following their feelings instead of truth. In their greed, they seek to exploit others. They indulge in lust of defiling passion. The defiling passion, that means they will do things that defile, that tear others apart in order to get for themselves. So if you're, if you're left defiled, you're left dirty, they're left torn apart, but they got what they wanted out of you, they can leave happy and contented. Uh, they despise authority but don't you despise theirs. They are bold and willful. They do not tremble at the thought of what they're doing against God or against the church or anyone else for that matter. They boldly make blasphemous statements in ignorance, not being learners, but just being led by their passions. And understand this, please. 
There is a difference between someone teaching a false doctrine and learning, being corrected, and not teaching that anymore. Uh, Apollos is an example of that in the book of Acts. Remember that he was, he was teaching and preaching, and then uh, they heard him, uh, and they helped him, they corrected him, they taught him, and he was happy to receive that training and that discipleship, and he went on preaching the gospel, didn't he? That's great. There's a difference between that and a person who remains willfully ignorant because whatever they're saying is working. Quote-unquote, working to bring about their desired ends. Second Peter 2 also says these false prophets and teachers have eyes for adultery. They entice unsteady souls. People who are unsure, tossed about by every wind and wave of doctrine, not rooted and grounded in the truth, or, or people who are desperate for attention or affirmation at any cost. Uh, these are susceptible to false teachers. And a false teacher is seeking finding an unsteady soul, seeing it as low-hanging fruit for them. Uh, one of the ingredients that you'll often find today in a false teaching environment has, has come to be known as a love bomb. A love bomb. Kind of ironically named, isn't it? But the idea here is that when a visitor comes uh, for the first couple of times, that the people know and have been trained to come around them, to make them feel so special and loved and affirmed. We're so glad you're here. We're so blessed to have you with us. You're so awesome. You're just going to be amazing. We're, we can't wait. We're so excited for all that is going to happen here because you're here with us. We're so amazed that you would grace us with your presence. And so on. And that's really sad. Because we are instructed as a church in Romans 12 to show hospitality. Are we supposed to love people? Yes. And love them means sacrificing ourselves for their benefit. A love bomb is not love. It looks like a great thing at first. But these love bombs, they turn out to be bait. Just bait for a hungry fish that can't turn away the opportunity for someone to be that into them. And they're caught. Second Peter 2.17 says this. These, these false teachers, are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. And it's interesting. Peter calls them waterless springs. Springs that don't produce water. Jesus calls them in Matthew 7, diseased trees. They look like nice trees. They might blossom in the early spring. But when the fruit comes, it's poison. Verse 16, Jesus says, You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So, every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear good fruit, or I'm sorry, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then in verse 21, in addition to the false prophets and the false teachers, Jesus teaches now that there will also be false followers, false believers. 
People who will call Jesus Lord to his face, who will play the part of doing religious-looking things, just like the Pharisees and the scribes had done. But they do not truly know the Lord. They had not entered the narrow gate. They have not walked this narrow path. Verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And notice here, this is not a a very well-hidden claim that he is the Lord, is it? Jesus is saying exactly who he is. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's a very interesting progression here in these verses. The first statement is the person who would know to call Jesus Lord. This person has their doctrine right. They know who Jesus is, and when present before him, they know what to call him. But there is a difference between calling Jesus Lord to his face and truly being his servant. Knowing him as your Lord. Calling Jesus Lord without submission is a way that people walk on that wide, easy path. It is only those, Jesus says, it is only those who do the will of the Father who will have eternal life. And so then the next phase in this progression, in this argument, the person could respond saying, but I did. I did. I did do godly things. I did follow the rules. I did do mighty works, even in your name. We know this. One can do many religious things. Acts that many would consider to be great works. But if they are trusting in those works to get them into heaven, they won't. Trusting in my works to get myself into heaven, again, is one of those many options on that wide path. Uh, Works-based self-righteousness is a way through the wide gate, which leads to destruction. Uh, Just an additional thought here, a good reminder for us. These people who are trusting in their knowledge of who Jesus is, trusting in their good works, their good deeds— Jesus is even saying that they're doing works such as prophecy, casting out demons, mighty works, uh, meaning even miraculous things. So this is not just your average helping an elderly lady across the street stuff here, is it? And Pharaoh's magicians, they turn their staves into snakes too. The Antichrist in the book of Revelation is going to have some amazing Miraculous, supernatural abilities. Miracles do not always equal godliness. So, be careful. Those things can catch our eyes, our ears. How could somebody who does something like that or or predicted that future event, how could they be doing something wrong? Well, just like many, many, many of those who went before them, 
and many, many of those who will come after. Given what the Word of God says to us about itself as God's sufficient Word, and what it says about false teachers, when we see people doing those kinds of things, it should be a red flag to us. Not catching our ears. Intriguing us that, to think maybe this guy, this guy is someone special that we should be listening to. When we hear about those kinds of things, what we should be thinking is, watch out. Think about this. When you're, when you're watching uh, some amazing video, some feed on Facebook or YouTube, you hear about some preacher who's predicted the end of COVID or who the next president's going to be or something like that. Who cares? Who cares? Does the Bible tell us that we need to know who the next president is? No. So guess what? You don't even need to know. And if they can predict it rightly, they had about a 50-50 shot, so there's that. But then on top of that, that doesn't mean anything regarding your faith in Christ. Be careful. Watch out. Be aware. With all these things uh, being said from these verses so far, on what do we base our assurance of salvation? On what do we base our assurance of salvation? Do we base our assurance on our rock-solid doctrine? Right doctrine is necessary for salvation, right? Uh, we must understand that God is holy, righteous, just, that we are his creation, that we have, we have sinned against him. And that in his love, his mercy, his grace, the Father sent Christ to die in our place to pay the penalty for our sin. That's a lot of doctrine right there. But passing that Sunday school test or the Bible quiz, it's not the same thing as repentance and faith. Do we base our assurance on our good works? A fruit is an evidence of change, right? It can encourage us to see the change that God is working in us. But it's not our salvation. Our assurance can be affirmed and bolstered by growing uh, understanding of scriptures as the Spirit continues to illumine our minds, uh, by our progressive sanctification. These are good things. But our assurance is not rooted in these things. A growing doctrinal understanding and a changed and changing life is the fruit of our, our, our conversion. It's not the source of it. So then... On what do we base our assurance of salvation? What's the answer? Who's the answer? I say the faithful grace of God. Our assurance of salvation is rooted in Him and Him alone. If our salvation is a work of God, and it is, then He must see it through. If I feel unsupported and I don't know that God's going to get this for me, and I think, well, I better make sure that I get myself grounded here. I better make sure, make sure I'm contributing to this. I've just brought my sin to the table. And I fall short. Christ and Christ alone. And our, our salvation and its completion, its final and forever fulfillment was purchased and guaranteed through a blood sacrifice. The sacrifice of Christ. Christ, it says in Romans 4, was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. That's why we can be sure. 
My doctrine and my works are just the fruit of this gospel truth. And if it were simply up to my doing, my ways and my efforts, I do not and I never could measure up to the righteous demands of our holy God. It is only on Christ, the solid rock, that we stand. Which brings up these next verses, starting in verse 24. Jesus continues, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, everyone who enters the narrow gate by faith and therefore by God's grace walks this path under the lordship of Christ, will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell. And the rain's going to fall. And the floods came. And they'll come. And the winds blew and beat on that house. But, what does it say? It did not fall. Why? Because it was well built. Because they followed the blueprints in the construction to a T. Well, at least more than other people do, right? Because they maintain the property better than anyone else. Uh, obsessing over every detail. Never cutting a corner with cheaper building materials. Always cleaning every speck of dust. Never allowing a blade of grass to be left unswept from the driveway. No. Because it had been founded on the rock. And understand there, it kind of sounds like an OCD kind of a thing going on, right? Never a blade of grass. But if you're counting on yourself to get you to heaven and you really want it that bad, you will never rest in your attempt to feel saved. Verse 26 says, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. It is so important for us to remember the context of the whole Sermon on the Mount. And even here in the, in the preceding teaching, the contrast in this sermon is not between the saved and the lost pagan who's, who's never heard the name of Christ. That really hasn't been compared in any of these chapters. The contrast has been between the religious lost, those who thought they had it all together, and the saved. Which means those building on the sand are those building in the name of religion, considered believers in God with a knowledge of the Bible. And in this illustration, a grasp of the blueprints with their tweaks here and there. What this house is supposed to look like when it's finished. And as long as the weather's good, we may not realize that there's a major problem with their construction. As long as the sun shines and the wind stays down, that house will look, it'll function pretty nicely. It will seem just as nice as any other. But in the construction, as the foundation was being laid, a choice was made. 
This reminds me of the super intellectual, difficult to understand story of the three little pigs. Remember the three little pigs? <laughs> Sorry, kind of pulled the rug out from under you there. One pig built his house out of straw. The next built his house out of wood or sticks or whatever cartoon version you watched when you were a kid, right? And the third pig built his house out of bricks. And the big bad wolf came and he huffed and he puffed and he could only blow down the the first two houses. So build with bricks, right? Yeah. Not today. Not today. Not this illustration. In this illustration, the person looked at their bricks. They looked at their version of the blueprint. They looked at those dumb brothers of theirs that used other materials and decided they didn't need that firm foundation. In today's illustration, the person who built his house out of bricks is offended because the wolf did blow his house down. Because he built his house on his own terms. He's ticked off. He's offended. He's decided this isn't fair. The consequences are not fair. This is not appropriate. That rock foundation shouldn't have been a necessity. Did you see what I've done? He or she looks at what they've built and the time and effort and energy they've put into building what is their life. This is my life. This has got to be worth something. And for God to call it rebellion and lawlessness, they just feel more angry. And they continue in their anger, in their rejection, to beautify and to reinforce their building, which is then continual and additional rebellion. Uh, Think about this now. If I am doing all of these wonderful deeds and all of these good works, and if I am counting on these things to make me worthy of heaven, then all of my good works are evil. A worker of lawlessness. I think now, this is the, in this passage, in this context, those sitting on the outskirts here listening to what Jesus is saying, the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they're experts in the law. And God's going to say, you worker of lawlessness. It's quite a challenge. And we know this to be true because Christ has declared it. If you are not building on the rock, your house will not stand. Jesus Christ alone has the authority to declare that. And because of who he is, he declares it because it's right and true. He couldn't declare it any other way. Verse 28. When Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For, because... He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Jesus gave all of his teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount, and it says, 
He says, if you hear these words of mine and do them, if you believe and follow me, you will have eternal life. I can't say that. You can't say that. The scribes and Pharisees, when they taught, they always referred to those who had taught before them, as so-and-so has said, as so-and-so has said. As I preach to you today, when I call on all of us to respond in faith and obedience, I must point you to the words of Christ. Jesus, however, he can say, hear these words, my words, follow me, do what I say. And he can say these things because he's not like the scribes and Pharisees. He is God the Son. He taught as one who has authority because he has all authority. That's fitting, isn't it? He ought to teach that way. He is in keeping with truth by teaching that way. And he is also good, righteous, true. He is perfect and without error. And so guess what his word is? Good, righteous, true, perfect, and without error, and authoritative. Therefore, everyone who hears these words must make a choice. And so as the Sermon on the Mount ends, Christ has set these choices out before us. Two gates, two ways, two trees, two builders, two foundations. And Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by him. There is only one acceptable all satisfying sacrifice for our sin. And that's Jesus Christ himself. Christ died on the cross. He suffered the just wrath of God for our sin. And he rose from the dead, confirming who he is and what he accomplished in full on our behalf. The work is finished. Our salvation is secured. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. And on this solid rock, on this foundation, which was laid by God himself, there the fruits of the grace of God in our lives will show. Here's the order of events, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace, God's grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. We're not going to go to heaven one day and be like, here's my sack of all the good stuff I did. You don't have to work so hard. You just got to add a little bit to it to get me in. And Jesus goes, whoa, you're amazing. That's not how that's going to work, is it? Remember, what's all in that bag? Sin. Sin. We're free. 
Christ has paid it all. It is finished. None of us are going to boast. And think, if we try to boast about ourselves, I mean, we try to do that here sometimes. How does that work? Does that ever end well here? Let alone in heaven. Our fullest joy is found as we are entirely satisfied in his glory. God is so good and loving to us that he has given us the greatest gift in this universe that he could possibly give. Himself. It says in Ephesians 2.10, after this, these two verses that we know so well, it continues and says, For we are his workmanship. We are saved by grace, through faith, not our own doing. It's a gift of God. It's not our works. None of us are going to boast. And it says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for, toward, good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Who gets all the praise? It's all his. It's all his. Thank you, Lord. I pray that uh, working our way through this sermon preached by our Savior, recorded here in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, I pray that it's been a great encouragement to you in your faith in your growth, in your, in your love and worship of Jesus Christ. And, and please let me ask this as we close. What are you trusting in for your salvation? What are you basing your assurance on? Are you building on the rock? Have you entered the narrow gate? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? If not, please do so today. I would love to talk with you after the service. If you have more questions, I'm sure those sitting nearby you would love to talk with you as well. Know this. We love you. And our desire for you is to know Christ and to be able to enjoy him forever. And church, be encouraged. Be encouraged remembering that Christ Christ is the rock upon which this house is built. And being mindful of the gospel, knowing that it is by the grace of God that we're saved, that it's even by the grace of God that we're growing and changing, that it's God's grace that strengthens us and helps us to persevere and and be patient through the hardships, those times it feels like the wind is never going to stop blowing. Knowing that this is all by the grace of God, remembering why and how we got here, helps us bring back our joy in the midst of this journey. If we're trying to go back to doing it all on our own, the joy is just going to sucked out. We need to be mindful of the gospel for strength to continue. We're not here today because we got some serious building skills. We're here because God took us when we had no interest in building his way and he set us on the rock. Praise God. And we're free. We're free from this feeling of this weight of having to work hard enough or to be good enough to warrant God's favor. He's already given it to you by his grace. And he did it when we didn't deserve it. So there's nothing you can do to deserve it more. 
It's already yours. He is even committed to ensuring that this building project will get finished. In this world, that's a wonderful thought. Building projects that get finished, right? Uh, growing up in Toledo, I tell you, the, 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 uh, the state tree is the orange traffic cone. Christ has promised to complete the work that he's started in us. This is going to get done. What he started, he has committed to finish. Philippians 1.6, Romans 8, and remembering where this narrow path leads to the author and perfecter of our faith, to eternal life without our sin and with our God. This strengthens us to take the steps that God has in store for us each new day with peace and contentment. So let's keep walking forward, church. Let's run this race together in love, in unity, and under the lordship of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, again, we thank you for your great grace that you've given to us. And I do pray for each one here today. It can be so easy to look at our lives and look at the things that are right in front of our face and see uh, the bad that's even happening outside of us, reading the news or, or looking at social media or whatever, and just being so distracted by the other stuff outside of us and get discouraged. We can look at our own actions, our own responses, the things that we do from day to day or the things that we don't do that we wish we would from day to day and we can get so discouraged thinking that we're going to just find it in ourselves to make everything go right. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to be here together today to remember the gospel. To remember that you uh, showered your grace on us that you love us, that you pulled us up out of where we were and set us on the rock that is Jesus Christ, that our sin is completely and entirely paid for and that by your grace, you're going to make us be just like him. That you've promised that we're going to walk this path and the end of, it, the end of which is going to lead to eternal life. God, thank you for giving us this freedom. Thank you for giving us life in Christ. Thank you for giving us this eternal promise and hope and joy. May we walk in it. May we look at our neighbors through this lens. May we look at our co-workers through this lens and eagerly desire to love them and to point them to Christ, trusting you to do what you're going to do. And Lord, I do pray that if there would be one here today who has never put their faith and trust in Christ, Lord, there may be somebody here today who's heard this for the first time. There may be someone today who's heard this thousands of times and they're still trusting in their building skills. God, I pray that you would open their eyes, that you would give them a new heart, make them a new creation, give them life in Christ. And may we rejoice with them. 
Lord, thank you for your love for us. We pray for your grace, knowing that it's your grace that strengthens us to go from here and to follow hard after you. So God, please provide this. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.